allows me to have any say in the music, but I asked for that this morning. Thank you, Aaron, for letting me uh, hear Dan. Dan wrote that song, which is a, 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 an ad- admonition from Jude 3 and 4, um, and he sang it at our Expositor Seminary graduation, and it was so well-received in my own heart that I said, I want to hear it again, especially in light of what we're going to be talking about today. Today is our annual TES Sunday, the Expositor's Seminary. And for our time of worship together, I want us to better understand what it means for a church to be involved with the training of men for ministry. It would be very tempting for most people to hear that we're talking about seminary training, about training men for ministry, and for you to say, this is a time I can check out, not be involved. This is for other people in other places, but has very little to do with me and my world. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The primary way that a man is trained in ministry is to be in the wonderful context of a loving local, healthy church. Now, I want to say a few things just as we get started here, because today's going to be more of a, 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 a kind of a, an encouragement, a spiritual pep rally in a good way, and, and a, a way to, to prod us all to being more faithful in who we need to be as a healthy church and to help these men be trained for ministry. But I also want to give a few caveats. Uh, we have a unique church setting in Kansas City. We have uh, several expositor seminary students in our own church, and uh, our church is one of the hosts of the seminary. We have uh, men who drive from further away who are a part of our church to be a part of the expositor seminary, but we also have a very good seminary up the road in Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we have students and instructors who are a part of our church as well. So in principle, all that we're going to be talk about, talking about extends beyond just the idea of the Expositor Seminary, but my comments today will be isolated on our role in being a part of this seminary training apprenticeship for the men who God has, who God has given to us. TES is the acronym for the Expositor's Seminary. As our name indicates, we are a seminary, which is a graduate school for ministers. That's what a seminary is. And we are anchored to the exposition, the preaching of God's word because of our belief in its infallibility, its inerrancy, and its integrity, and its inspiration. We look at those and say, because of all the truthfulness of God's word, it's the most integrity-filled document that's ever been written because of the other three eyes, we look at that and say that defines who we are, that defines our ministry, that's the content of our message. It is the parameters of our message. It's also uh, instructive in the way we deliver our message for Christ's church. TES can be confusing. Uh, We have a sign out in the atrium that you'll see 11 campuses. It's a, a... a cohort of 11 churches that work together um, from Florida, Alabama, Virginia, Georgia, North Carolina, Michigan, Texas, and here in Kansas, in Kansas City. And the way it works is unique. You've probably seen the sign upstairs. You've wondered what goes on in that room. Let me just explain it to you as simply as I can. There are two scenarios that happen technologically in there built on a foundational philosophical premise. This is the foundational philosophical premise. 
that pastors are the best and most biblical trainers of pastors. And yet, there needs to be a a level of acumen, of expertise, of scholarship when you're training a man in the disciplines of ministry. Hebrew, Greek, philosophy of ministry, uh, missions, theology, all of these things come together, pastoral oversight, come together and demand apprenticeship and expertise. The challenge is not every pastor, this one included, is an expert in Hebrew and an expert in Greek and an expert in preaching and an expert in, but we do have different emphases. So among the 11 churches the, the, uh, and, and campus pastors, we have doctor of ministries and PhDs in, in preaching, in Greek, in Hebrew, in New Testament studies, in Old Testament studies. These are genuinely scholarly men who are training from the position of Pastoral ministry, not the academy. And by the academy, I mean the school system. So as we think about the Expositor's Seminary, I want us to think not just about that room upstairs or those 11 churches all over the country, but I want you to think about it as something that you participate in and that you own and something for which God is looking to you with great amounts of responsibility to fulfill his will. The way the technology works is it's through high-speed conference uh, video conferencing. Um, there are two scenarios. Scenario one is, let's say, I'm teaching here. I teach expository preaching and uh, other electives. When I'm teaching, the camera is facing me, and we have our guys in the room. And on the back wall, I see two big screens in which I can see the other 11 campuses because there's a camera in their room facing the students. The technology is so smart that when a student asks a question, for example, in Lynchburg, Virginia, his uh, video feed then blows up to full so that we can see him. He's also on a screen behind me so that the, the, uh, the students can see him as well. They can turn around and look at the other campuses if they need to. It's really smart technology. After a minute or two, you kind of forget that you're not in the same room with each other. Scenario two is, let's say that uh, uh, Shane Kohler is teaching New Testament studies in Atlanta. Then our guys would be watching two monitors, one of which they would see a video feed of Shane. The other, they would see his PowerPoint or anything that he would be doing uh, of of an illustrative nature. So it, it really is dynamic, and it allows experts who are pastors in different dimensions of ministry to feed each other. We, we're very, very deliberate and careful about vetting, taking on new churches. We have to be in lockstep doctrinally, philosophically, the way we do discipleship, the way we do church, the way we do ministry, our, our uh, theology about God himself, our theology about God's word. All of those must be in exact precision or the gears will get all out of line. And that's with the 11 churches. If you have any questions, you'll inter- I'll introduce the guys at the end, and you can um, uh, ask them about it. You're welcome to come and, and kind of look in on the class sometime as well if you just want to see how it's happening. What makes TES unique, though, is that the courses are taught by pastors. These are pastors who have particular experience and acumen or expertise in specific areas that they can bleed that topic through pastoral ministry and also that 
pastoral ministry comes out of the topic. It, they, they go hand in glove. It's not isolated to the head and the heart or, or the knowledge and the action. They all come hand in glove. And as I said, among our faculty are scholars in, with doctorates in Greek, in Hebrew, in New Testament, in Old Testament, in biblical studies, in preaching, and in pastoral ministries. Let me read you from our purpose statement in the TES catalog. The purpose of TES is to magnify the glory of God by serving the local church through training, equipping, mentoring, and affirming men who are called by the Lord Jesus Christ into the ministry of the gospel. Now, the best way (coughs) that I can explain this to people who just need a, a, a real simple outline of what we do here is I went to seminary, and by the way, there are great seminaries in in the country. We are not anti-institutional seminaries. I have degrees from several institutional seminaries, and I'm thankful for each one of them. Uh, I'm very grateful. We have no uh, uh, agenda to say we're better, but we do feel like we have a lane that we're driving in that's unique. In the seminary model, though, it's often the case that a guy is desiring to go into ministry. He's showing the signs of love for the Lord, love for the Word, love for the things of, of the ministry. He, he wants to be involved. And you're just building up momentum. He comes out of high school and he's getting more desire. He gets into college and he has a great desire for the Lord. And just about the time that it's really time for the most hands-on, precise training, you send him away. And you never see him again. So the best way to explain it is I went to the Master Seminary, which I, I love and adore and, and would honor and extol to this day. I went to the Master Seminary and I got involved in church. In our model, you come and get involved in Mission Road Bible Church and you get a Master of Divinity. See the difference? In other words, where the church is the, the holder of the man's life, not just the classes you check in and out of. Our goal is to nurture students' proficiency in several areas. Let me just give you four. This is not our outline yet. Expository disciplines, to know biblical languages. They learn Greek. They learn Hebrew. Two plus years of each, three years in most. Exegetical courses, critical exegetical analysis, textual problem solving, crafting expository sermons, the art and passion of expository preaching. So they're looking into expository disciplines so they know what to do with the Word of God in the pulpit. Also, theological disciplines is an accent. We recognize that a proper theological framework is essential to biblical ministry. If you know how to do church stuff without attaching it to biblical and theological realities, you'll soon run thin, and that's why people resort to pragmatism. They want to know what works rather than what's right. So we teach a theology which is exegetically derived. It comes out of the text. For everything, we want to have book, chapter, verse. We also have a consistently presuppositional approach to apologetics. What does that mean? We believe that everything a person needs to understand God and his ways, God and his church, God and ministry, God and salvation, everything is contained in the Bible. We want our men to have a sound theological understanding for living the Christian life, not 
what we should do, but why we do what we do, why we don't do what we don't do, leading to a doxological vision for Christ that everything is praise to the praise and glory of Jesus because he is our Savior, not just the object of our sermons. So expository disciplines, theological disciplines, we also train them in practical disciplines, a philosophy of ministry. How do you do what you do? Not every church does church exactly the same, but the 11 churches that have cohorted together in, in the expositors, philosophically, we're on the same page. In other words, we're looking upward, inward, outward. The glory of God and, and exaltation and worship and, and honoring God above all else. Inward, looking at what it means to be a church member, to develop body life, the one another's, how we treat one another within the framework of Christian experience and relationships. And then outward, what it means to evangelize and take the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Looking for pastoral virtue, that they don't just do something, that they are something. They don't just do the work of the ministry, they are Men of God. Understanding church government, deacons, elders, how do, we, how do we involve people? How do you lead a spiritual volunteer organization? And it's more difficult than you might think. Biblical counseling, duties of the pastoral office, carrying out of the ordinances, practical body life, shepherding, critical thinking. How do you solve problems? How do you create consensus among leaders without being either a dictator or having other people run over you. And also, we, we focus on discipleship disciplines. This is the personal side of it. All the students are involved in personal discipleship relationships. Staff guys meet regularly with them. We want it to be life on life. It really is a, a four-year apprenticeship. Now, question. Why another seminary when there are so many good ones? Even a good one just up the road from us. Well, the evangelical church, I believe, is facing a crisis that has snuck into our world. And if we're not careful, this will be the undoing of the American church. The problem is the way in which men who want to be pastors find churches who need them. And the way churches who need pastors find the men who want to be pastors. Think about it this way. The problem with men who want to be pastors falls into two categories. They, they can look for a perfect church and therefore bypass churches that, that actually need them because they want a church that they don't have to do much shepherding and correcting and, and caring for, looking for the perfect church, perfect health. And if you find the perfect church as a pastor, you found a church that really doesn't need you or you'll just mess it up. Secondly, they can also want to be in a pastoral position so badly that they compromise core values and doctrinal fidelity and end up compromising just to have a job. The other side is the church is looking for pastors. Can I just tell you, just as a friend, can I bleed on you for a second? The candidating process for churches founding youth pastors, youth pastors founding churches, churches founding senior pastors, senior pastors founding churches, associate pastors looking for churches, churches looking for associate pastors. It's so broken, it's almost unredeemable. It is 
horrifically broken. And oftentimes, at the moment in which a church needs its most precise pastoral oversight and leadership, finding a pastor, it has not one. It's difficult. I was on the phone um, this week with a church giving a reference for a friend who I've known for many years. I was on his reference uh, call list. And uh, they, they asked me several questions, and I answered them to the best of my ability. And they said, thank you, thanks for your time. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I have a few questions for you. And one of the search committee was a lady, and she says, you have questions for us? I said, actually, I do. She says, well, no one's ever asked us questions. I said, let me ask you, how are you going to take care of my friend in this? What about this? How are are you going to solve problems? What if there's disagreements? And I began asking them, peppering them with questions. And the point was, this is my friend, and I actually said this. I said, this is my friend who I want to interview you for him as much as you want to interview me for him. Are we vetting one another? I am just sick at my stomach at how broken the candidating and finding process is. If I could liken it to the dating world, it's like you go out on a couple of dates and then you get married. It's a very broken process. One of the things we're trying to do with our 11 churches and our network is do legitimate vetting and legitimate recommending so that resumes shouldn't even be needed. It should be a conversation with a person, a pastor who knows that man best. Many churches delegate the choice of a pastor to representative groups in the church. I talked to a group a few months ago. I'm not making this up. And on the committee, remember, I'm being a reference for another man in another state, a different guy than I spoke of a minute ago. And there was a group of people who were, uh, they were on Skype or FaceTime or something around a board table. And they were asking me questions about this man. And they had a junior hire, a senior hire, a collegian, some young marrieds, some older marrieds, some widows, a widower. They had in their, in their uh, designation or their admission representatives from all parts of the church because we want the whole church to make this decision. Shouldn't the elders and leaders be the first to make that decision? We should involve everybody in, in those kind of choices. But the leaders of the church should never delegate away their primary responsibility for the spiritual care of a body. And one more vent. Humor me just for a second. It's hard for me not to be angry. It's hard, let me, that's too light. It's hard for me not to be irate when I read descriptions of what churches want in a pastor. And it leads off with this statement. Three years experience. Five years experience. It breaks my heart because what they're doing is saying, we want someone else to work out the kinks in this man's life so we can get the finished product. Can I just beg you at Mission Road Bible Church, we want to be that church that gives men experience, that invests in men. Too many churches want a man with experience Too few churches want to be the church that gives that man the experience he needs. By God's grace, our heart at Mission Road Bible Church is that we're a place and a training area arena that come together 
So a man is trained in the church and through the seminary, simultaneously getting valuable real-time experience and the theological and original language tools that he has to have to do exposition and to do shepherding. This happens because these men are being trained in the church first in conjunction with a seminary. Now, John Frame has written extensively on the model of academia today, and I just want to pick his brain for just a moment. One paragraph stands out that he wrote uh, back in 19, I think it was 73. He's edited this article several times since then. But let's listen to what, just listen to what he says. John Frame, prominent theologian in America. In the early days of Protestantism, the training of ministerial candidates was carried on by pastors of churches. A young man feeling a call of God to the ministry would associate himself with a church pastor. He would receive training from him, participate in the work of the parish, perhaps even living in the pastor's home. I'm not sure why, he says, but eventually this system was felt to be inadequate. Perhaps there developed a shortage of ministers able and willing to take in the theological students. Perhaps as the literacy rate increased among congregations, it demanded the clergy have a more formal education, a learned ministry, as they used to say. At any rate, Frame says, for some reason or another, theological training became institutionalized. And at the same time, academiaized. The use of the academic model was almost inevitable. In Germany, theological education was carried on through the universities and in fact, university approach was the only generally recognized model available for the institutionalization training in any field, end quote. In other words, there was this idea that if you were really going to be good at something, you had a, seminar, excuse me, a university degree in that area. And people felt, well, just living with a pastor and being trained by the pastor doesn't cut musters, so we're going to make sure that we get them degrees as well. Footnote, I am not against theological degrees not in the slightest. But when those degrees begin to substitute for genuine vetting of a man in real life, real time ministry, something's amiss. Gardner Spring wrote in the book, The Power of the Pulpit, he advocated seminary faculty should maintain close supervision over a student's academic process and also his social and spiritual development. He goes on to say that the, the true trainer should be involved in their dating, in their marriage, in the raising of their kids, in how they spend their money, in every dimension of their life. He goes on to say, seminary faculty uh, should consist of men with extensive pastoral experience. I'm not sliding any seminary professor for not having that, but... I am saying that you and I should be very careful in the training of men that they are being exposed to men who are doing what they're going to do, not just theorizing about what they might do. Spring ends by saying, no student should be ordained to the ministry until he has spent a time of apprenticeship with an experienced pastor. Now, in our context, end quote, in our context, it's not just Rick Holland, it's not just me. It's our staff and our elders and our leaders in the church. We believe that seminary training and church training should not be two separate paths, but one lane that they drive in. So what does it mean for a man to be called into ministry and what does that have to do 
with you. That was a long introduction. The sermon will be shorter. What does it mean to be called into ministry, and what does that have to do with you? Well, I think all of us must understand this process so that we can be faithful and responsible to be a part. God has called you to be a part of the training of men who are going to be pastors of other churches. And three of our Exposer Seminary graduates, by the way, are pastors of your church. So let's break it down. I want you to understand this nebulous, ill-defined, undefined Call to the ministry. If someone says, I was called into the ministry, what does that mean? Did they hear a voice? Did they see a light? What does it mean to be called into the ministry? Well, there are four parts. Let's break those down. Four parts of a call to the ministry. These are important that you know because you're a part of recognizing these in a man's life. Four parts of a call to ministry. The first is desire. Desire. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, <coughs> verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, 1. Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, who is pastoring at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus where Paul had spent three years. I often think of the church at Ephesus. What a church. Can you imagine saying, Paul was our pastor and Timothy is now. 1 Timothy 3.1, it is a trustworthy statement. This is worth thinking about. If any man aspires, literally strongly desires, the office of overseer, it is a kalos ergon. He desires to do good work, good thing. It is a very good thing to desire to do. So there's aspiration and there's desire both right there. People, people have been somewhat puzzled, certain people, when they say, Rick, why did you go into the ministry? How did God call you into the ministry? And my first answer is, well, I, I wanted to be a pastor. I, that's what I wanted to do. Well, did God speak to you? I, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, yeah, in the work, I know. Well, was, there a, was it a sermon you heard? Well, not exactly. My main starting point in a call to ministry was listening to a man on the radio named John MacArthur. And I literally, I literally had this thought. I'm so embarrassed to say this to you. I th- this tells you the kind of church I grew up in. I remember saying after hearing a few sermons, what a great idea. Like during the sermon time, during the Bible time, what a great idea to like explain Bible verses. That's just blowing my mind. What a great idea. Before that, it was read a verse, three or four stories, shake hands with the pastor on the way out. I was exposed to expository preaching and I remember being on fire. It literally warmed my insides listening to God's word explain, looking at verses that I hadn't understood before and saying, I see that now. And after listening to that radio preacher for a while, it, I began saying this, I, I kind of like to do that. I love God. I love the Bible and his word. I love the church. I, I, mean, I wonder if I could, 
explain the Bible during sermon times. That was the beginning of my desire for ministry. Excursus. I know you've heard this. Please don't judge the men who said it. But I want to provide a bit of a tender yet public correction for many who have said this phrase. The Lord drugged me into the ministry, kicking and screaming. Well, then it wasn't God who drugged you into the ministry. Because it says if any man aspires, it's a good thing he desires to do. We go into the ministry because we want to. We love God. We love his word. We love his sheep. We love his church. We love his people. We want to see people grow. We want to see people, see people change. We want to see marriages healthy and focused and the church growing and people evangelized and coming to the saving knowledge of Christ. We want to do that. If any man looks at the ministry and says, well, I can't do anything else. That is not a genuine call to ministry. It's a fine work he desires to do. Notice also, it's a fine work he desires to do. It's work. You don't desire the office. You desire the work and the office follows. And without sounding in any way self-serving, ministry is hard work. Early morning, late nights, sacrifices of your family, travel, counseling at all hours of the day and night. It's a never-ending call on your life. There's, you're always on call. It's not like a physician who, who gets to cycle off being on call every now and then. But the bottom line is there's something you want to do. You desire to do it. You want to do it. So the first thing we ask when a man is interested in ministry is, is this what you want to do? giving him a realistic understanding of what it is and saying, is this what you want to do? Secondly, character. A second part of the call to ministry is, is his character commensurate with a reputation that serves the reputation of God? Look while you're there at 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then, and footnote, an overseer... Episcopos um, is a pastor who is a poimane, uh, who is um, a presbyteros, which, which is a, an elder, presbyteros. So these are all the same function in the New Testament. A pastor, an elder, an overseer, same person. In Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter chapter 5, these words are used as synonyms for the same office. So a pastor, an overseer, an elder then must be above reproach. Doesn't mean he's perfect. It means he is leaning toward righteousness and leaning away to, from his sin. The husband of one wife, literally a one woman man. Only one woman occupies his heart. I had, I've heard a man years ago say that the only people qualified to be pastors were, were those who married their childhood sweetheart because you had to be a, uh, have only one wife and only one woman in your life. No, it's a present, the, the verb is a present tense, a one woman man, meaning for me, I have eyes and heart only for one woman on this planet. And I do. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. <laughs> Just a little, little footnote. My precious wife, Kim, 
has a curiosity about this, this verse. She says, why? I wonder, one of the things she wants to ask the Lord one day, you know, when you were describing the, the character qualities for a man in the ministry, I wonder why hospitable is there because she's the one who has to exercise the hospitality more than I do. But I end up inviting everyone over and anyway, you know how that goes. Able to teach, apt to teach. He can defend and, and correct doctrine. Not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Because, as a footnote, if a man does not know how to manage his own home, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert, a mature man, so that he will not become conceited, fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation above reproach with those outside the church as well, with unbelievers, so he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. There's also a similar list in Titus chapter 1, and you can compare those. They're very much overlap between the two. The bottom line is a man of God must act like a man of God, a godly man, someone who whose faith is genuine. Just for a moment, look over at, um, and this is a, for you seminoids, this is an underlinable verse, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. This is one of the most important verses in all of the Word of God about ministers and ministry. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Paul's speaking of his own uh, experience uh, he actually harkens back to Psalm 116. He says, having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, faith is according to Scripture. Scripture is what is written there. Same spirit of faith, according to what is written. I believe, Psalm 116, therefore I spoke, Psalm 116.10. Then he says this, we also believe, therefore we preach, or therefore we speak. In other words, there must be an authenticity in a man's life where he genuinely loves the Savior, not for ministry benefits, not for ministry recognition, not for any accolades, but he loves the Savior and everything he does in ministry is in the overflow of that. We preach, we speak because we believe, because we honestly, sincerely, genuinely are attached to that which we're teaching. Character matters. Most of us could sit at lunch today and give a, a horrific illustration of some man that we knew who was well-respected, who fell in the ministry. This week, just this week, a man who I love, a man who I was a part of his training, a man who so many invested in, committed adultery and lost his ministry and is hanging on to his marriage. You may have heard it said, when a man falls into major sin, he doesn't fall very far. The decision that this man made to ultimately commit that act was not the beginning of a process. It was the end of a long process of smaller compromises in his heart. So as a part of a church, knowing these men, you need to be investing 
into their life. You need to be investigating their heart and their character. You need to be tapping them on the shoulder on, on how they're raising their kids and loving their wives. You need to be caring for their wives, looking after their character so that once they are trained and about to go out, we can say, I know that man and he preaches because he believes and what he believes matters in his life. Number three, gifting. Gifting. Ephesians 4, verse 11 says, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. This is a strange thing to say, but you understand that pastors are gifts to the church. It feels odd for me to say this, but I am God's gift to this church. <laughs> but I don't mean it in the vernacular way of that. So is Aaron, Bob, Myron, and Adam, and our elders. By that, it's not that they're, they're to be esteemed as some tr- precious you know, vase you put on. Look at this gift that God gave us. No, they are gifts for our common work of good in the service of Christ. He's given us helps, aids, gifts to be able to shepherd us. But in giving the gifted men to the church, they are gifted in specific areas. 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards in the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength of which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has given two kinds of gifted people to the church, those who use their gifts publicly in preaching and teaching and those who use their gifts more behind the scenes in serving. You can have both sets of gifts, but a man who is going to give leadership to Christ's church must have some upfront speaking Giftedness. Romans 12, 6 to 8. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given each of us. Each of us is to exercise these gifts accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of faith, service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching. In other words, there is a gift of teaching. Now, you got to be careful. (laughs) Some people's gifts are different and more um, uh, pronounced and more honed and more experienced than others. Uh, Recently, I was uh, cleaning out a drawer in my my office, and I found some old sermon notes. And I looked at those notes, and I felt so horrible for the people who heard that sermon. I hope that there's some growth in that. There's going to be growth in all of us as, as men who are trying to proclaim the truth. But there needs to be a giftedness that we're observing, which means where do you, fall, where do you come into that? You're hearing these men. You're listening to them. You're encouraging. You're listening for your soul. You're listening for how you can help them. All of these men will well receive your critique. That's different than criticism, your critique of trying to help. Um, I remember a sweet lady. I was, I was a junior high pastor at Grace Community Church. And I had an opportunity to preach in what we call big church. And this sweet lady who um, um, 
All right, everybody stop for a second. Uh, we have Bruce who's, uh, I think, passed out again. And uh, let's pray for Bruce, and then we'll just keep going. We have the right medical staff back there. This, is, this has happened before, and we're going to let them do what they do, okay? Father, give Bruce health and peace right now. Help the medical personnel who are around him to serve him, to care for him. You know his body, fearfully and wonderfully made. Please, by your goodness and your grace, restore his health in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So they'll take care of that and we can just keep focusing. Yes? It's Crystal? Lord, what I said about Bruce, please transfer to Crystal. So, Father, you know what's going on right now, and just thinking character, desire. It comes to number four to confirmation. Someone has to affirm these things, and that's where the church leadership comes in. That's where you come in to be able to affirm and give feedback on, on these men who are training. Don't have expectations that they're going to be Chuck Swindoll and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, all right? Know that they will grow, but we have to confirm that their lives are what they need to be, that they're gifted, and that they're working hard at their own lives. We're committed to training men in character, knowledge, skills, and wisdom. What I'm asking you to do is to be willing, faithful, to watch these men, invest in these men, look after these men. Can I just give an, no one told me to do this, an unsolicited plug that these guys have hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars of books they need to buy every semester. They're not cheap. They have things they need to invest in, um, Bible software and these kind of things. If that's something that the Lord would encourage you to want to invest in, please talk to Bob, talk to me. We'd love to help you in any way that we can. So don't, um, uh, don't think that you can't invest in ways that, that are tangible. Paul told Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. We often look at the young man and say, you're to be an example to those who believe. We, we don't often have to say, are we looking to them as examples? Don't look at someone and say, ah, that's a young punk just training for ministry. No. This is a man training to shepherd God's sheep. You and I are God's sheep. How can we, what should we do to respond in a way that will help them be better shepherds of God himself, for God himself? Listen, we have graduates on our staff, Aaron Johnson, Adam Buletel, Myra Watson. Also, please pray for two of our graduates who are looking now for positions, Tim Taylor and Trevor Aiken, are both uh, in, the, in talks with churches to find a position. Please talk to them, pray for them, encourage them. And then I want to introduce you very quickly to our students for this year. Uh, I'll just, I'm going to ask the men to come up here and the wives, you can just stay. And I know there's kids you're taking care of. So men, if you could just come up, I want to introduce you to the uh, congregation. Luke Felton, Luke and Kathy Felton. Luke, where are you? Are you here? Come on up. Mark and Jenna Rodenberg. Mark's here. Come on up. Aaron and Anna Smith with little Graham. James and Bethany Sullivan. It's hard to believe, James, you're the old guy in the room now. 
Eva and Betsy and Ellie are their children. Then Tanner and Morgan Weens. Tanner, if you would come up as well. These are five gifts God has given us. Now, don't look at them. Look over them to me for a second, okay? Just like, listen. God expects us as a healthy church together to train, equip, and give proper experience to these five men so that they are better prepared to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We together own their training and their opportunity and their leadership. That also means that they're going to do wonderful jobs. You're going to give them high fives. And they're going to do and say things. You're going to think, they're going to grow out of that someday. But can I beg you? Will you join me? Can we be a church where it's very healthy and safe for a man to try, to trip, to fall, to fail, and we'll get him back up as well. Let's be that kind of church that is a wonderful, safe, training group of believers. But it's not just training for future ministry. What they're doing now has high stakes before a real God, a, tr- a real devil, a hungry devil matters. So I'm going to pray for them and and please uh, tap some of them on the shoulders. Say, how's your book allowance? How are you doing? Let's take care of these men. Make sure they're eating and taking care of their wives and kids too, okay? Let me pray. Father, these men are gifts to you. They're gifts from you. They're gifts for us. Help us to care for them as they care for us and to train them into the men that you can use choice, excellent men of God, For your glory and for their good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our prayer room is open. You guys can settle back to your wives now. Our prayer room is open. If you want to talk to someone about anything, please let us do that. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to give these these guys the opportunity to do what they're medically trained to do. So if everyone could kind of lean toward, let's, let's empty the room and fellowship out in the 